Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Minister, do you expect more people will die before you and other governments are able to accomplish what's really needed? I mean, people are dying almost on a daily basis because of the the impacts of climate change. Um, So unfortunately, yes. That's Stephen Guilbeault, the Minister of Climate Change, and he's talking to me about this calamitous summer of heat, wildfire and smoke that sent vast amounts of carbon dioxide into the air. I'm wondering who you think is accountable for the huge increase in emissions this year. Well, we all are. We also dive into his tense relationship with the Premier of Alberta. My role as Environment Minister is is not to make friends. Gibbo has some surprising things to say, including his response to a CBC investigation into the dangerous levels of heat so many vulnerable Canadians are living with. Now that's up first, then my conversation with the minister. Welcome to What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. I'm Laura Lynch, and this week we are looking for answers after a summer of deadly heat and fires. I sleep maybe two and a half hours, half an hour at a time. It's just too flippin' hot. I could go outside, but I'm scared to do that in this neighborhood. Because if somebody came at me, how would I ever get away? You know, it's affecting me. I mean, I'm tired. I can hear my voice shaking. I can hear her voice shaking, too. Tara, who is this? She sounds just exhausted. Hey, Laura, that's Samantha Johnson, who goes by Sam. And she lives in New Westminster, B.C., and she's talking about how hot it gets in her apartment during the summer. You can certainly get that sense in listening to her, just how the heat is affecting her. But I think before we hear more from Sam, I think we need to tell listeners who you are. Yes, I am CBC investigative reporter Tara Carmen. And Tara, you're here to tell us about a project that you have been working on so hard for the past few months. You sit quite near me and I see you bent over your computer all the time. Yes, bent over my code. I have been working with a team of CBC journalists across the country and we've been using heat and humidity sensors which we set up in 50 apartments in five cities across Canada. So those cities are Windsor, Vancouver, Winnipeg, Montreal and Toronto. And we were trying to see like how hot it gets inside people's homes and measure how long that heat actually persists after the sun goes down. Why did you want to look into that? Yeah, we wanted to look into it because we know that during BC's 2021 heat dome, which we remember so well in this part of the country, almost all of those 619 deaths that the coroner attributed to heat occurred inside but there was almost no data on how hot it actually was inside those homes. And the little information that did exist came from people who had smart thermostats who agreed to anonymously share their data. And we know from previous work that's been done in the U.S. and other places that outdoor temperatures are not always a great predictor of what's going on inside. 
But maybe most importantly, we just wanted to put a human face on all of this data. Okay, so how did you go about tracking all this? Right. So these sensors um, took temperature and humidity readings every 10 minutes from roughly the end of June until mid-August. So we compiled all of that data. And what we found is people living in all five of these cities had temperatures in their homes that experts consider unsafe, sometimes for really long stretches of the summer without relief. Well, then let's get back to Sam, because she is one of those people. Yes, I last visited Sam in August. So she's 79 years old and a former legal secretary. She had a heart attack in 2005, which left her with congestive heart failure. And when I got to her apartment, it was 9 o'clock at night and 29 degrees in there. And she got up to let me in, and it was clear that she was not doing well. The first thing she told me was that her hair was stuck to the back of her neck because she'd been sweating. And you could see that just even getting up to answer the door was a big amount of exertion for her. Like, she had to sit down again right away. And what was she doing then to to try to keep herself cool? Well, she has a window-mounted air conditioner that she paid $450 for, but it doesn't work. So she runs four fans and an air filter to try to keep her place cool. And you can hear them running in the background of our interview. It's kind of like the soundtrack of Sam's summer. And during the time we were monitoring the heat in her apartment, there were eight days when the temperature never dropped below 26 degrees. And the hottest point it got um, during the summer at several times was 29 degrees. We saw the health risks of heat. As you said, so clearly in B.C. during the 2021 heat dome, hundreds of people died. A lot of them were seniors with health conditions, just like Sam. Yes. And in fact, Sam told me that several people living in her building, her neighbors, died during that heat dome. I knew one of them myself and the other two I had seen around. Right. Right. That's awful. Yeah, it is awful. So you, you know that it's a very real danger. Well, I'm, I'm very aware, so I'm really doing my best to watch what my body's doing because of the heart failure. Yeah, yeah. You're at risk because of yeah. your age and your heart failure condition. And the heart failure condition, yeah. yeah. So public health officials advise people like Sam to, you know, go to a cooler part of their home or go to a cooling center when it's very hot. But for Sam, who lives like in a one-bedroom apartment, that advice is not helpful. For one thing, going outside in the heat to even get to a cooling center is a challenge. I have heart failure, so as soon as I do any type of movement, the sweat just pours off of me. And then even if she can get to a cooling center, such as a library... I could stay there until six or seven, and then I could come back to this and not sleep all night, and then get up and go back to the library. Those politicians have got it all figured out, don't they? That's crazy. You know, I mean, can't they critically think? Can't they think that seniors need a place to rest? They need a place to sleep? Wow, she sounds angry, and I, I, I guess I... I don't really blame her. I mean, this is something that's happened uh, in and around the lower mainland in Vancouver Island in the last few years because we haven't needed air conditioners, and now we do. So it's a real problem. It's a real problem, and Sam was definitely having a hard time, as you heard. But it's not only seniors who suffer when indoor temperatures are high. I'm going to take you to another person now who let us monitor the heat in his home this summer. 
So Greg Walton lives in Windsor, Ontario, um, by himself on the top floor of a 1960s building without air conditioning and west-facing windows. The walls of his apartment are plaster, which just holds in that heat. And he has a hard time sleeping, and he says he gets irritable and tired in the summer. I want to play some audio now from a selfie video he sent us in August as he got ready to go visit his fiance. So here we are. It's Friday night. I just got home from work at 10 o'clock. I finished work at 10. It's 11 o'clock right now. I've taken a shower. I'm getting ready to go see my girl in Detroit. And although I've dried off and getting dressed, I'm already starting to wet my shirt. I'm sweating profusely. There's almost no draft in the apartment tonight. I have all the windows open and it is sweltering in here. Oh, that sounds awful. I hope uh, his fiance has air conditioning in her place. <laughs> I hope so too. Yeah, Greg was actually one of the people in our project who spent the highest number of days with no relief from the heat. So the maximum temperature his apartment hit was 31 degrees. And there were a few times when the humidity out east made it feel like 34 or 35. And on nearly every day that we measured, that temperature did not drop below 26 degrees, even at night. Okay, but but in, in Greg's case, does does he have any uh, existing health conditions that, that this kind of heat would, would make more dangerous? I know he said he was irritable and tired. He does not have those same kinds of pre-existing health conditions. Um, but even for someone who doesn't, to be living at temperatures that high for that long is going to cause a strain and it affects, you know, your concentration and your job performance. Greg works as an electrician and he works in construction. And there's been research that's been shown when people work outside in those temperatures, you know, don't get enough sleep, their performance on the job can suffer. And that's dangerous for him. And that's dangerous. Okay. And even, Laura, in cities where the weather wasn't particularly warm, people still struggled. Winnipeg, for example, had unseasonably cool temperatures during the time we were monitoring the heat in people's homes. But people like Denise Gauthier suffered nonetheless. So Denise is 68 and, like Sam, has health problems, including heart failure. And she says her doctor gave her a prescription for air conditioning because of that. A prescription for air conditioning? I think I've heard about some doctors writing those. Did, did that make a difference for Denise? So Manitoba Public Housing installed an air conditioner on her main floor in late June, but Denise says the cool air doesn't circulate because that room is too cluttered. So Denise sleeps upstairs, and the sensor in her upstairs hallway still recorded a maximum temperature of almost 30 degrees on August 2nd, just after 8 p.m. at night. And for Denise, there were 10 days uh, when the temperature in her apartment never dropped below 26 degrees. Here's what she said about how she tries to cope. One thing usually I'm going to do is a cold shower. But right now it's so hot over here that I don't even know if I could take a shower. It's too hot in the bathroom. Uh, and especially if you close the curtains. And I should just explain that when it gets too hot, Denise starts to have trouble breathing. And that's what I'm scared because... When it goes out of control, I have like a panic attack at the same time because I'm afraid. And I can't take 911 because I'm not covered for an ambulance. I have to take a taxi to go to the hospital. They're not happy about that. They say, no, no, you call 911. But, you know, when you don't have any insurance... 
How difficult for her I, and stressful. I can hear that when she's talking about it, not knowing what she should be doing. Yeah, and it's even more stressful for Denise because she sleeps with a machine which fits over her face and helps her breathe at night. And if she sweats, it interferes with the suction on that machine. And that could mean she might stop breathing. So she wants people to know that for her, air conditioning is not a luxury, but a medical necessity. Okay, let, let's step back for a second, Tara. What, what is actually known about what heat does to the body? So I spoke with Glenn Kenny about that, and he is a professor at the University of Ottawa who for decades has been researching the impact of heat on people. So when we take a look at the temperatures and what happens above 26 is essentially what you have to think about is that the body then has more difficulty essentially trying to dissipate heat. So as we get into a hotter condition, it creates a greater strain on the body. And as we get older, we lack that ability to activate our heat loss responses as more robustly as we would when we were younger. We have to remember that when we are exposed to heat, it's not just a single day exposure. Extreme heat events can last three, four, even seven days or longer. The body is going to be facing, uh, you know, undue stress for that long period of time. And when he talks about activating those heat responses, I think that's probably professorial language for things like sweating. I guess yeah. the, the, and he's talking about that cumulative impact of heat on, on the mm -hmm. body for long periods of time. It's harmful to health when your body just simply can't cool down at night. No, your body can't cool down so you don't sleep and then you feel even worse. So you heard Sam talk about that earlier. A public cooling center that's open during the day might be helpful, but what about when you're at home at night and you can't sleep because of the heat? So Glenn says that means your body might have more difficulty coping with heat stress the following day as well. Uh, okay, um, now you've mentioned this number several times. Glenn mentioned this number, 26 degrees. Yes, so Glenn says that's a key number based on his own research, putting people in conditions of heat and humidity and watching how the body reacts. And what he's found is that temperatures above 26 become more stressful on the body. Like your heart has to work harder to cool your body down when temperatures are higher than that. And heat puts strain on the heart, which can be dangerous for older people, especially dangerous for people with pre-existing health conditions like heart failure, as we see with Sam and Denise. What we do know is that as we get older, our ability to sense changes in our hydration or thirst sensations reduce. So you're also sweating, they're losing body water. So now you're getting a state of dehydration. So now you're seeing a, a more strain on the heart as the heart now has less blood to push around. So over successive days, this can be problematic especially in the elderly, may take medications that might affect hydration, you're going to see an exacerbation of their existing condition, plus they're going to be more at risk of developing a heat-related injury. Well, that is just a mix of a whole bunch of really dangerous factors for older adults. That really gives you a sense of how risky everything is for them. It does. And that was really brought home for us over the course of this project. Um, I have to let you know, Laura, that during the time we were monitoring, one of the people who had a heat sensor set up in his home died. And his name was Herman Grohn. He was 88 years old and lived alone in Surrey, BC, just southeast of Vancouver. And his apartment faced west and got very hot in the afternoons. 
Uh, this is a sad story. And you, and you actually met him, didn't you? I did. Um, I first met Herman in late June. And just to paint a bit of a picture, when I met him, he was um, sitting in his favorite recliner that he loved um, behind a large stately wooden desk where he had his landline telephone, um, his writing pad, and all of the remotes. So the remotes for the TV, the remotes for the fans, and the news was on. And at that time, he was captivated by the story, you might remember, of the missing Titan submersible. Right, the one that was going down to see the Titanic and then imploded. Exactly. So Herman was a former naval officer, and so this drama at sea was quite riveting for him. Um, Herman was Danish, very proud of that ancestry. Um, He had done many paintings, uh, which he had on the walls of naval ships on the blue ocean flying the red and white Danish flag. And he had framed pictures of um, family members, former partners, and adult children who had passed away. So that is a a vivid portrait. And it also sounds like Herman was somebody who was really engaged with the world. So what happened? How how hot did his apartment get this summer? Laura, our sensor data showed that Herman was living in temperatures at or near 30 degrees for most of the summer. The hottest it got in his apartment during the time we monitored was almost 32 degrees. And that was on June 30th at 7.20 p.m. And that peak temperature around 7 p.m. was not unusual, by the way. It was when our data tell us, on average, these apartments were typically at their hottest. So during the time we monitored the heat in Herman's apartment, there were 43 days where the temperature never dropped into that safe zone below 26. 43 days. 43 days he was living in that heat. And Herman had no air conditioning. And he actually thought he wasn't allowed to have it based on letters sent to his neighbors, a few of his neighbors, by his landlord. And we've seen those letters. Not allowed to have air conditioning. Okay. (laughs) Um, We have heard similar stories about landlords and air conditioning that were in the news earlier this summer. The CBC reported in July that tenants in multiple buildings under different management companies had been denied permission by their landlords to install air conditioning. Yeah, um, a notice we saw from one landlord stated that older buildings are not equipped for the high electricity use that air conditioners need. Others had concerns about the actual physical safety of installing a window-mounted air conditioner. And they said tenants would be liable for any damage caused by installing one. How was Herman doing as the, as the hot summer wore on? Yeah, I spoke with him twice in early August, and I could hear in his voice that he was not doing well. Um, and it was a change. Uh, when I first met him in late June, he told me, yes, his place got hot, but he could handle it. You know, he had served as a naval officer in the tropics. But by early August, that had changed significantly. He, he said it had been hot in his place, and he said this is too much. And he also said he'd really like to be able to have air conditioning. And what he was doing was using his fans, and also he had a black umbrella that he'd open up and put in front of his west-facing sliding glass door to try and actually block that afternoon sun. But it wasn't working very well. And in fact, he told me he'd been in hospital two weeks earlier, and that was in late July when the lower mainland weather was quite hot because he'd been having trouble breathing. And I should mention here that Herman, like Sam, like Denise, had heart failure, and shortness of breath is an important warning sign for that. 
So I asked if I could visit him for an interview um, the following week in the evening, but he wasn't sure about that. He told me, you know, he didn't function very well in the evenings after spending all day in the heat. And that was something we've seen a lot, you know, throughout this series. So um, he told me, you know, he had difficulty breathing, performing basic tasks. So I said, no problem. That's fine. We can meet in the daytime. And and then I called him back a couple of days later, and this was on a Friday afternoon, just to confirm. And Laura, he sounded like a different person. Um, he was upset. Um, he sounded angry, very agitated. He said he did not want to do the interview. He did not want to participate in our heat monitoring project. He wanted to be left alone. No more phone calls. He just was out. He couldn't do it. So... I told him, okay, that's fine, you know, and someone will come next week and pick up the heat sensor. Well, that must have been a bit of a flag for you that, that something was potentially very wrong there. I was quite worried. Um, and so I spoke to a friend of Herman's who we've agreed not to identify due to his own kind of vulnerable situation. Um, but he told me that the next day after I talked to him, he was so concerned about how hot it was in Herman's apartment. And we know how hot it was because we had the sensor there. It was 29 degrees. Um, so this friend took Herman one of his own two air conditioners. And on the Sunday, um, Herman's breathing problems came back and a caregiver called 911. And then a few days later, I heard again from the same friend who told me that Herman had been taken to the hospital where he had died in the early hours of Monday morning. And this friend said the doctors determined that the causes of Herman's death were congestive heart failure, pneumonia in both lungs, kidney failure, liver failure. And he told the doctors how hot it was in Herman's apartment. And they told him, yeah, the heat could very well have been a factor in his death. Now, unfortunately, we don't know which doctor this was. Um, it was a big hospital, so we can't verify this. But we've talked to other doctors who told us that an 88-year-old with heart failure would be very vulnerable to the effects of the heat. This is such a sad thing to have happened. I mean, you introduced us initially to this man who was obviously priding himself on his self-sufficiency and, and his resilience. He really did pride himself on that self-sufficiency. And I can tell you, Laura, that he had family both here and in Denmark. He had friends and he had a church community here who loved him. And as you said, one of the things you wanted to do with this project is put a human face on, on what these numbers really mean. As hard as it is to hear about what happened to Herman, I'm wondering what you can take away from all of this. Yeah, we wanted to know that too. And so we put the data from Herman's apartment to Dr. Aaron Orkin, who is an emergency room doctor in Toronto. And he, of course, wasn't able to speak to Herman's case directly. But one thing he did say is that doctors need to start thinking differently when patients come into the hospital during heat waves. And we know that if we were to do something absurd, like discharge someone from the hospital with only candy to eat with their diabetes, they will stay sick and they'll come back to the hospital and they might die from that. What these data are showing us and what these stories are showing us is that it's time for us both in the acute care sector, in emergency departments, and in the public health world as we're thinking about building guidelines and construction standards, to realize that if we're discharging people home who are suffering from heat-related illness back into a home setting that simply cannot cool down, the idea that medications or other treatments will fix their 
health problems, that they'll be able to address those without getting the heat under control is equally absurd. Okay, well, that, that's the perspective, right, from, from the medical, from the public health angle. But there's government has a role to play in this, too. The governments are aware of the risks of heat because um, here in B.C., the provincial government set up a program to provide free air conditioning units to 8,000 medically vulnerable low-income households over the next three years. But if some landlords are telling tenants they can't install air conditioning, I mean, what do those in power say about that? Well, it's funny you mentioned those air conditioners because every person I've interviewed in BC from this story have asked about the air conditioners and no one has received one. Um, some people say they don't qualify and others like Sam read the fine print and saw that it's going to be weeks before she could expect to get one. And so she joked that, oh, maybe I'll get AC for Christmas. Not exactly when she needs it. Exactly. So, but there has been some movement from officials on this. Um, after CBC story you mentioned um, about landlords forbidding tenants to install air conditioners, the two lower mainland health authorities put out new public health guidance encouraging landlords to remove these rules against air conditioning. But many are asking about whether we need laws with more teeth. And Glenn Kenny, the heat expert from the University of Ottawa, says we do. I've been asked many times, you know, is access to air conditioning a human right? You know, it's, it's really about protecting your life. I mean, we come back to the same analogy of, you know, years ago, we weren't wearing seatbelts, but we mandated that seatbelts be uh, installed in cars. And there was a reason for that. It protected lives. And if it's required that we have to maintain indoor temperatures at 26, and the only way to do that within our changing environment, remember, it's going to get even hotter out there. So if air conditioning or even having a single room as your safety zone that's air conditioned to limit the impact of whole building cooling, then we may need to do that and may require legislation to ensure that those vulnerable people that are, are being told that they can't install, let's say, a wall-mounted air conditioner can do so. Uh, to ensure that they feel safe and protected. Okay, so there's one potential solution, that idea of maximum allowable indoor temperatures. And and we've been hearing about that. Hamilton is the only Canadian city that, that's considering enacting a bylaw that would require uh, landlords to ensure units are kept below 26 degrees, similar to the way building owners have a minimum allowable temperature in the winter. Yeah, and the thing we've heard over and over from experts on this is the importance of getting the most vulnerable people into a cooled environment when those indoor temperatures go above 26. And not just during the hours when it's convenient to run cooling centers, but all the time. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean giving everyone air conditioners, but it would mean buildings would have that maximum allowable temperature that they're not allowed to exceed, just like they have a minimum temperature they can't go below in the winter. And it would be like consciously designing new homes to be better able to maintain that temperature through things like shading and green roofs. But I want to get back to Sam in New Westminster. For her, the answer is clear and simple. Force the landlords to put a heat bump in. Regulate what the temperatures can be in the summer as well as in the winter. You know, what are politicians thinking? Oh, we'll go out and we'll give $10 million and you can get 8,000 air conditioners out to the public in a year. They don't need them in a year. They need them now. And that urgency uh, is well understood. She's making a powerful call there. And we're going to ask Canada's climate change minister about 
that urgency about some of the solutions that you've shared with us in just a moment. But Tara, thank you so much for bringing us the story. Thank you for all the work and crunching all the numbers and talking to people who are trying to survive all of this. Thank you for having me, Laura. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth. I'm Laura Lynch. Coming up, some new ideas to decarbonize your commute. More and more, the devastating reality of climate-linked disasters is coming home to Canadians. As we just heard, part of it is about heat that is killing people and threatening animals, sea creatures, even the foods we eat. Wildfires that are racing through thick stands of trees and into homes and entire towns. Floods. Glaciers melting so quickly it threatens cultures and ways of life. And still, Canada continues to extract, burn and export fossil fuels producing emissions that make the climate crisis worse. To talk about all this and more, I'm joined by Canada's Minister of Environment and Climate Change, Stephen Guilbeault. Welcome to What on Earth, Minister. Thank you very much, Laura. I want to start by asking you about the CBC investigation that has revealed just how dangerous heat is becoming to so many people in this country. You have said that preventing deaths due to heat is a priority, But your target to have no more heat deaths isn't actually until 2040. I'm wondering what you're doing to help people who are at risk right now. What are we doing right now? Well, that's why last June I presented uh, Canada's first ever national adaptation strategy, um, a a strategy that we developed jointly with provinces, territories, Indigenous nations, municipalities, experts, to, to ensure that we are, so it's not a federal adaptation strategy. It's not just what the federal government has to do, uh, and, and it certainly includes that, but we know we can do everything as a federal government, and it has to be a, an all-hands-on-deck approach to helping Canadians, um, helping our infrastructures, uh, helping our ecosystem be better prepared to face the impacts of climate change, because we're not ready, and, and frankly, no one is ready. I know, but, but I, I understand all of that, and I've, I've read the adaptation strategy, but just let me repeat again, the target to have no more deaths isn't until 2040. And you can presume that people are going to die from heat in that time. What are you doing right now to help those who are so much at risk? So the reason it's 2040, for example, is because we know we will need to retrofit most, if not all, of the existing building stocks um, to ensure that our buildings are are, are better prepared to face either uh, extreme heat, which we're seeing more and more, but but also at times extreme colds. and, and that will take time. It, it's not to say that there aren't things that we can and aren't, aren't already doing right now, working with local public health authorities to, to put in place plans where we can identify people who are at risks 
in, in, in case of heat waves so that those people aren't alone in, in their apartment with no one knowing about it so that there are programs where, where they will be monitoring while people will reach out to know if they're okay, do they need to be moved to a facility where there's cooling. These are things that are already being done. But in terms of you know, being able to retrofit all of the buildings or most of the buildings that, that we have in, in Canada, that will take time. It's not something we can do overnight. So you're suggesting that the, what can be done now for those who are elderly, less mobile, poor and, and young, as you put it, or, or who don't have access to cooling stations, you somehow are going to make sure that there's somebody checking in on them and taking care of them. Well, it's not, I mean, the federal government won't be doing that, but we're working in partnership through uh, through Health Canada, through the, the Canadian Health Agency, in partnership with provinces, territories, and, and local health authorities to put in place these type of programs to try and minimize the risks. And I understand we won't eliminate that risk in the short term, but to minimize the risk of people being being left behind in some of those heat waves. Minister, do you expect more people will die before you and other governments are able to accomplish what's really needed? I mean, people are dying almost on a daily basis because of the the impacts of climate change. Um, So unfortunately, yes. And the faster we act to tackle our climate pollution in Canada and around the world, I mean, it's not just about Canada, obviously, but the, the less impacts we will have of climate change. So when I hear people tell me, Minister, you're doing too much. There's too many measures to fight climate change. You need to slow down. I, my answer is no. I, I can't. We can't. That, that's not a price collectively we, we, we can pay because the more we delay action, the more there will be people suffering and unfortunately death in our own country and around the world. Yeah, there might be others who said you're not moving fast enough, though. And, and I just want to switch the conversation to talk about fire. It's been a summer of fire, not, and it's not just wildfire per se. It's this new kind of wildfire that's voracious, that's fast, creates its own weather. And that changes down to global warming that's made forest lands tinder dry with warm spring days. And it's a recipe for this kind of fire we've been seeing. What can government do to protect people and make those forests more resilient? So there's a number of things we we need to do. Certainly, we need to train more uh, f- firefighters, force fire firefighters. Um, we we need to procure equipment. Uh, we need uh, we need better forecasting, um, which is why we're in the process of deploying a which will be around the world a groundbreaking technology uh, to use satellites to help us. Uh, it's basically an early forest fire detection system that will be deployed in the coming years. Um, we 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 also need to ensure that um, we have better forest management practices. Well, all that that fire and that smoke that that has come out of the wildfires this year is now accounting, and just in Canada I'm talking about, is now accounting for a quarter of all global emissions so far this year. I was shocked when I read that number. What do you say to that? Well, I would say to that what I've been saying for 30 years. Climate change is real, and we need to act. And the f- again, the faster we, we act to tackle our climate pollution, um, the better off we will be. And if governments had listened to scientists and others 30 years ago who were saying we needed to act, maybe we wouldn't be in, in the situation we are today. Maybe we would. 
but there's the, there's a chance we, we we could have avoided more extreme weather events that we're seeing. Unfortunately, governments didn't do that. They have started acting in the recent past. Uh, certainly, the, the the Paris Agreement is an international turning point. Uh, before the Paris Agreement, sci international scientists were telling us we were heading into a world where warming would be in the order of 3.5 degrees Celsius. Uh, since Paris and coming out of the last rounds of negotiations at the end of last year, those same scientists are telling us that we're now probably heading into a world of 2.5 degrees Celsius uh, increase in temperatures. 2.5 degrees Celsius is better than 3.5, but it's a lot. It's too much because what we're seeing now is only with one degree Celsius of increase in temperatures, the forest fires season that we've had, the floodings. But if, if I can just come back to the emissions, we know that climate change is making wildfires worse, and we know that climate change is largely caused by the continued exploration and burning of oil and gas. So do you actually need to tackle that more than the other things that you're talking about? Um, I think we have to do everything we can, including those things. But I, I don't think it's mutually exclusive. Uh, and yes, we need to reduce our dependencies on, on fossil fuels. If you look at the world energy portfolio right now, it's still about three quarters of, of, of our uh, energy still come from fossil fuels around the world. Uh, and, and Canada is a contributor to that. We're the fourth largest producer of, uh, of oil and gas. But Minister, I'm just, I, when, I, when I talk about what the oil and gas industry and, and the emissions have done to make these forests that much drier and more susceptible to wildfire, I'm wondering who you think is accountable for the huge increase in emissions this year. Well, we all are. I mean, all of us have benefited from what has come from the use of of fossil fuels and and now um, we have to come to the realization that we can't continue doing what we've been doing for the last few decades and we need to change the way we do things we're all to blame not not the oil and gas companies that that knew what was going to happen with global warming and and kept it hidden oh i, I mean of course they're responsible and 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 they're to blame but it, i think it would be easy to say oh it's just the oil and gas companies we all, you know, in one way or the other, we, we, we all consume those, those, those products. I mean, even I don't have a car. I've never owned a car. But, you know, my, the bicycle that I use is still produced in some ways by, by, by using some fossil fuels, on, you know, the, the metal that was extracted. And so we're all part of the problem. And, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to, to, to blame people. I'm just saying, you know, it's easy to point fingers and say it's, it's them, it's not us. We're, we're all part of this. And, and we all need to be part of the solution. But, of course... These companies that are making record level profits have an increased responsibility. And, and some of them have known for a very long time and have lied about it. And that's why I said I was so disappointed with the comments from, from the Suncor CEO saying that we needed to focus on the economy. I think as a nation and, and globally, we've been very focused on the economy for the last, well, for, the, for many, many yeah. decades. And now we need to, we need to balance that. It I, can't just be about the economy. I just want to clarify that for listeners. The, the Suncor um, executive said he wanted to see a revised focus on the oil sands while there's disproportionate focus, this is his word, on the longer term energy transmission to low emitting and Transition. renewable fuels. So y when you hear that, what, what do you think of the oil and gas companies, particularly those in the oil sands? I, as I said, I mean, uh, when I heard that, I was extremely disappointed. Um, they have a responsibility. 
Um, they've made a lot of money, and, and, and we benefited from that, as I, as I said. Um, but it can't be someone else's problem. It's their problem, um, and, and, and they, need to, they need to rise up to the challenge. And, and right now, many of these companies aren't. Some would argue maybe most of these companies aren't. And comments like that are extremely un unhelpful, and they're irresponsible. They're not, they're not just unhelpful. Like, I think if we needed yet another reminder that we've entered the era of climate change, I think that the summer we've seen, certainly here in Canada and, and all around the world, is a reminder that, you know, there should be no more debate as to whether or not we need to act and how fast we need to act. I just want to ask you about something else that's just been reported. Reuters is reporting that the Canadian government's fund that's meant to support clean tech has told the Pathways Alliance, um, which is a coalition of oil sands companies, that its carbon capture project is too large and too risky to qualify for a contract with the fund. Um, we've talked about carbon capture a lot on this program. Even if it does work, it won't be up and running for years. I'm wondering what you think of the project. So I, I, I won't be able to comment on, on this article because I have not seen it. Okay, um, just generally I, then to, about this well, idea of carbon capture and, and because the government is helping out with tax credits to get this thing off yeah, the ground. We are. And um, I don't think that, that carbon capture uh, and storage is, is the solution to climate change. And I think in the plan we presented last year with the Prime Minister, the Emissions Reduction Plan, we, if you look at it, you, you'll see that this technology will play a small role, not an in insignificant role, but a small role in our overall climate strategy. So I'm not putting all my eggs in that basket because for the very reasons you're, you're outlining. Now, at the same time, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, tells us that carbon capture and storage I is an essential technology to get to carbon neutrality. So we're putting some money into it, but we're putting way more money into public transit, for, for example, or, or, or other forms of, of clean technologies, uh, renewable electricity, transmission lines interties between between provinces but we are putting some money into it because it, it will likely play a role but we're we're not we're not sure I mean the technology exists in it and has been around for a long time those people who say that the technology doesn't exist it's simply not true but but can it be used to the scale that some say it, it, it should and and is it the solution to our climate change problem of course not you're promising to introduce a draft version of the plan cap on oil and gas emissions as early as October. And that you know that any talk of a cap in Alberta is met with some pretty fierce resistance from people like Premier Daniel Smith. And I just want you to listen to her speaking uh, to CBC's Power and Politics program a few days ago. I mean, look at what Stephen Gabot's statements have been. He has talked about reducing emissions 42% by 2030. That is seven years from now. And if you talk to anybody in the industry, if he's intent on pursuing that kind of aggressive target, that is a production cap, because the only way to achieve it would be by shutting in production. We have seen uh, studies that have been done on this most recently. One suggested that that kind of a, a aggressive emissions target would cause us to have to reduce our production by 1.5 million barrels per day. And that is, quite frankly, outside the mandate of the federal government. They do not have a mandate to determine the pace and development of our resources or how we structure our power grid. I'm wondering what you say in response to what she says. I um, The study that she refers to that's, that saying that the, 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 the cap on emissions would lead to a reduction in production of 1.5 million barrels a day is based on thin air. 
<laughs> I don't know how people can can make studies about something they haven't seen. Um, we haven't even presented the draft regulations yet, and yet some people go out there and and, and make those the, those claims uh, about about production cut. I, I find it a bit a bit rich, frankly. But she's basing um, that on forty two percent by twenty thirty. I, I, well, yeah. yes, but the question is, how will the the regulations? ensure that that we achieve those environmental objectives which are very important but we understand that at the same time economic development is important jobs are important but but you know what when it comes to job the alberta federation of workers is on our side they 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 they, they want us to to do more when it comes to to fighting climate change They're in favor uh, of the measures we're we're putting forward so this idea that somehow you know it's the economy versus the environment I mean, I know there are still some people who say that out there, but but there there are fewer and fewer of these people. Some of them have very loud voices. I'll I'll agree to that. But I I think the Supreme Court was very clear in its ruling on carbon pricing that the federal government has a role to play uh, when it comes to tackling pollution. It's not a, a a blanket right that we can use blindly, but it is if done properly. If we've done our consultation, if if the regulations are 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 reasonable from a procedural point of view. Um, I, I suspect that you know Alberta and maybe other provinces will decide to challenge that in, in, in the courts. It didn't stop carbon pricing from moving ahead. And I suspect that if we do make it in front of the courts and perhaps all the way to the Supreme Court, that b because w we will have acted in the same way we've acted on, on carbon pricing, which, by the way, Alberta was opposed to it and now they're doing it, and Saskatchewan was opposed to it and, 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 and they're doing it, um, th th because of the way we, we did it, I think that the courts will, will rule in our favor. Minister, um, I, you and, and the Premier don't seem to have a very good relationship right now, and it's a pretty key province uh, for the federal government to work with. Um, at what point does this relationship become an obstacle to getting things done? I, I mean, my, my role as environment minister is, is not to make friends. I, it's not to make enemies either, but I, I, I'm not here to play chummy with people. And my, the responsibilities that the prime minister has given me when it comes to climate change are very clear. Canada needs to do more and we need to do it faster. That's the responsibility I have towards the prime minister and towards Canadians. Uh, Minister Gibo, so many other questions I'd love to ask you. I hope we get another chance to talk soon. But for now, thank you for speaking with me today. With great pleasure, Laura. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And we asked both the Alberta government and Suncor for their response to what the minister had to say. A spokeswoman for Suncor wrote to say that CEO Richard Kruger's comments were taken out of context. Kruger does say Suncor is committed to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. The government of Alberta said it couldn't respond by our deadline, but I can promise you we will keep on this story. Remember, you can listen to all of our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. We want to know what you think. That's all for us this week. The show was put together by Danielle Piper, Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, Matthias Wolfson, and Catherine Rolfson. Special thanks this week to Joanne Levasseur, Lori Ward, and the whole team at CBC's investigative unit. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.